Hello, Dan and Eric. It's great to have you here. You're my guest from Warm Capital, and I'm very interested in getting to know your firm. How are you doing? Good, Tillman. It's good to be with you. Yep, yep, doing well. Yeah, appreciate you having us. You're working remotely. Where in the U.S. are you located? I'm in uh, Portland, Oregon today. And, and I'm in uh, Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, I'm here in Stuttgart, uh, in Germany, here down the street is the headquarter of Daimler, which is one of the competitors of Tesla. And we will go into Tesla a bit later during our interview. Um, but first, I want to have a look at your, you had had a, have, had a great, quite interesting and impressive performance with your two funds. It was 37 and 57% since inception of the funds. Really impressive. Um, I want to start with the question, where do you see yourself, not only in terms of performance, but uh, also involvement of the fa of the firm, because this is impressive track record and it's hard to keep it up. But how do you see yourself in five years? Yeah, sure. Maybe I'll, I'll take a stab at that first. It's a pretty open-ended question and Dan can uh, correct me where I'm wrong or, or have his own thoughts. But, um, you know, we frankly, we, we don't try to focus too much on the year-over-year -year performance or or certainly not monthly or quarterly. Um, we're just trying to get into position for what we view as a pretty uh, chaotic next 10 years of investing. Um, in our particular strategies, you know, we, we look for industries that are undergoing significant changes due to a new technological innovation. And so for us, this is, this is a great time to be stock pickers. Um, we see a lot of misinformation. We see a lot of chaos. Um, within that chaos, we find a lot of opportunity. So You know, probably won't comment too much specifically on you know performance-wise. We just think that there is abundant opportunity right now, um, but there's also a lot of risks and challenges embedded in this market, uh, given sort of the the velocity of change that we're seeing on the on the ground level of the businesses that we study. Um, businesses that maybe were once considered safe um, are no longer, in our perspective, that safe of an investment if they cannot make transition to to a new type of paradigm of a technology that's being adopted. So yeah, we're I mean. On a high level, we're just super excited about the next 10 years. Um, we think there's a ton of opportunity. Um, you know, we, we don't do too much sort of uh, public facing marketing. Uh, a lot of our clients have been with us for a long time. Um, but we're, um, you know, obviously speaking with you today, we're, we're open to, you know, learning from and working with new investors. And so we're, we're excited to have that opportunity as well. Yeah, and I, I might just tack on, totally agree with what Eric said, is that, you know, the foundation of the strategy, which we launched in 2012, um, was, was to capitalize on these, you know, really dramatic Cambrian changes that, that we foresaw in the market. And from our perspective, um, we're, we're only going to see an acceleration of these trends. Um, so, you know, for those that have experience, for those that are, you know, there's a great opportunity, you know, to continue to compound returns. But it's really just an opportunity and, you know, you, it's really difficult and you have to execute on that as well. Um, so we're excited and we think that the next 10 years or so, and even the next five years are, are you know, have a, a real chance to be even more chaotic than what we've seen recently. So for stock pickers, you know, we, we think it's a great environment. Tillman here. I want to give a loud shout out to Stream by Mosaic. Stream is a super helpful tool for every investor. Stream offers a great transcript library and is getting better day by day. There are three reasons why Stream could also be helpful for you. First, getting up to speed quickly on new investment ideas. Second, 
generating new investment ideas, and third is staying up to date on existing investments. If you want to try it, you can do it 21 days for free. Just go to start.mosaicrm.com to start a free trial today. With the promo code GOODINVESTING, you will also get 20% off for the first year. So please give it a try at start.mosaicrm.com. With the code GOODINVESTING, you will get 20% off for the first year. You can find the code and the link also in the show notes below. Thank you very much. I want to show you a chart uh, and want to hear your, your opinion on it. And if you discuss this kind of chart in uh, your firm, it's uh, the comparison of growth and value. And uh, so are you discussing this kind of chart? And also, what is your implication if you discuss it in, the, in your firm? This is not like a specific chart that we would probably weigh too much importance um, on. I, I think, you know, um, our perspective would be, um, you know, while the companies that, that we typically are attracted to and invest in, which are typically higher growth type of models, um, the distinction between growth and value is, is somewhat semantic. Um, certainly, you know, the, the performance attribution that you showed shows, you know, a, a, a specific diversion in the performance relative to the type of, of company. Um, but that's why I think we're so focused on being concentrated in, in the right names, um, because we're going to continue to see this big dispersion of the big winners and potentially the big losers as well. So um, in our view, at least, you know, this, this tends to be a pretty winner take most type of marketplace. Um, there's just an acceleration effect that we see taking place as well. Uh, so I think, you know, from our perspective, that's not something that we uh, try to overweight in our thinking or our st specific strategies. We're ultimately just trying to find the best business models in the world that, that have the ability to, to compound out, you know, um, for, for the next 10 years or so. So um, it's, you know, obviously something that comes up in discussion and maybe Dan, if you want to touch on that, but um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give it too much importance for us right now. Yeah, obviously interesting in the inversion that you're seeing, and then there are specific time periods where you know it got more dramatic. Um, you know, from from our perspective, um, we're we're really solely focused on business level value proposition and go forward valuations. Um, you know, if if we thought that um, there wasn't going to be a precipitous decline in some of the companies that we have less favorable opinions on. We would obviously, you know, move in that direction, but everything from us starts and ends from a business perspective, um, you know, and then moves on to the valuation perspective on a go forward basis, not a backwards basis. And, um, you know, when we see, uh, you know, obviously we've seen certain, you know, let's call it frothiness in, in components of the market that we're invested in, but not specific companies that, you know, we're particularly invested in. Um, so. You know, from our perspective, it's it's really focused on the business, and there are you know several market dynamics that haven't historically been present, you know, in terms of winner take all or winner take most dynamics, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, the interesting chart, all, all good stuff, but you know, for us, it's you know, all of our valuations are on a forward-looking basis, and we're just really. Um, obsessed with you know the the customer level valuation and things like that some people would have expected arnie here who's also 
the founder of your firm and uh, the brain behind it. Why can't he participate in the interview? I think, uh, you know, I just spoke with Arne earlier today. Uh, he uh, He's focused on the portfolio. Um, he is truly not a guy that um, loves publicity. Um, I think his his kind of comfort zone and happiness is really a 24-7 obsession on the book, um, both, you know, kind of monitoring current positions, both on the long and short side and, uh, you know, looking for new opportunities. Um, but he's he's just not uh, he's not out there trying to uh, do too much marketing or publicity. So he's comfortable kind of uh, what doing what he likes doing. Yep. And yeah, I appreciate you putting up with um, at least myself. I think Eric looks great. <laughs> uh, and uh, but yeah, it's, you know, from us, everything that we try to do is it, it's pretty difficult to get an edge in this environment. And, you know, even our competitors that we disagree with their um, investment positions, you know, we still respect everyone that's doing this because it's extraordinarily difficult. So, you know, where, where we can pick up um, small edges and small advantages and, you know, for that, it's it's not having our, our CIO, you know, necessarily do a ton of publicity and being able to, um, because we're looking at long-term investment horizons, you know, think relatively slowly and methodically without, you know, a, a, a wide array of distractions. You know, for us, we think that's the best um, use of our investment resources, you know, for our partners. Maybe at this point, I also want to ask you what your roles in the firm are. Uh, I already started without an introduction, but maybe that's the point that we get some background on you, both of you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, uh, my title is director of research. Um, I come from kind of a unique background. Um, Perhaps, I guess, uh, I was an investigative business journalist and business reporter. So I essentially, I you know, um, went to school in New York City. Uh, I wrote about technology firms for magazines like Inc. Magazine, later uh, Newsweek. I have articles published in The New Yorker. Um, my focus was always on technology companies primarily. Uh, and in doing that, I, you know, got the chance to interview probably hundreds of CEOs, you know, high-level executives at technology companies, But on the flip side, I also spent plenty of time working with and, and speaking to different venture capitalists and some public equity investors. And so having gone to school for both business and journalism, um, you know, I think my perspective was, wow, you know, I love writing about these these high growth technology firms um, and eventually wanted to be able to participate and invest in them. And so about uh, coming up on, well, five years ago. Uh, Arnie and Dan had just kind of launched Worm Capital. Um, Arnie had read some of my reporting. I think specifically he may have read a, a big cover story I did on uh, Aaron Levy at uh, Box, the, uh, which is now public. But when I wrote about the company, it was still private um, and was looking for some research help and looking for maybe a bit of a differentiated type of uh, research style. So we, we really like to go deep fundamental research, uh, understand sort of the, the components of an industry, Uh, you know, who all the major players are really on a deep fundamental analysis basis. And so, um, you know, perhaps those those skills for, as, a, as a reporter and someone who can get kind of obsessed with companies and industries and go deep on something, it, it translates kind of interestingly and I think well to to the investing side. So, um, you know, that's what I'm still doing today. I'm working with, with Arnie and Dan um, on, on research primarily. Um, and, uh, you know, I think our perspective is, Having come from you know the world of media, it's incredibly difficult right now. I think for not just individuals but investors especially 
to kind of separate the, the noise from the signal. So we're, we're constantly inundated with information. And one of the primary skills that I think investors need to develop and really kind of focus on is being able to separate what, what matters, what's the headline that actually is, is driven by, by some fundamental issue and versus what's noise, what's you know, clickbait, what's, uh, what's something that's maybe going to capture the news cycle for, for 24, 48 hours, but um, is ultimately not, not relevant and not material. So a lot of my day is just spent, um, you know, looking for new opportunities, trying to sift through sort of the current data landscape, um, and ultimately focus in on the companies that we own and, and are looking to own over the next few years. So um, that that's the high level of my role. But obviously, we're we're a pretty small org. Um, Dan does research as well. Um, Arnie obviously spends most of his time on research, uh, but I'll kick it over to Dan to kind of give you his background. Yeah, not nothing. Uh crazy exciting. Basically, my undergraduate degree was in uh, molecular biology, and I wasn't really cut out for lab work. Uh, it was a little boring for, for, for my liking, and really like the, the multi-factor element that you get in basically investing. Um, but, you know, when I first got into it, you know, at a you know, relatively low-level position, um, and, and I, I have my CFA, and I got a uh, a master's in science investment management. I was pretty shocked by the kind of legacy work done by academics and, and things that were presented as scientific fact that just clearly were not the case. And at the same time that uh, a significant portion of the industry itself is more of a marketing machine than an investing machine. Um, so I was always um, attracted to kind of individual investors who had done their own thing and had kind of carved out their own niche and especially if they had gone against the grain and done it all by themselves um so i was working at a ra in san diego where where arnie was living at the time um and he had been kind of a just a uh a lone operator himself just working 24 7 and, and he had done a significant amount of writing and i was just you know i was like this is the guy I, I was extraordinarily impressed with um, his ability to go against the grain, the deep work, the, you know, frankly, lack of BS that, you know, we see in certain cities in the United States. Um, and, you know, I was um, immediately attracted and, you know, wanted to work together with him to, to build um, a bigger firm and, you know, allow more um, opportunity for outside investors. And, you know, that's just kind of what we've been doing. And, you know, we, I work with Eric and it's a relatively flat org structure. I do all our trading and, um, you know, from our perspective, we, we think that, um, you know, conviction is, is basically how you generate returns and getting conviction is extraordinarily difficult to do. It's a lot easier to, you know, farm out gigantic analyst teams and have investment committees. But from our perspective, that's the way how you get middling returns because, you know, you start moving towards the average. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been a great kind of adventure. And, you know, again, as we had kind of alluded to uh, previously, we, we think our strategy is well set up for the, for the next 10 years or so. And it's every day is new and, and there's something to learn uh, at all times. So it's been great. You mentioned the filtering out of noise and signal. Is there any hack you found or any good way to do it? Uh, no. Uh, and if you have a hack for it, you know, please let us know. Um, I think uh, I the best hack is, <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, the only one I've come up with is time, uh, you know, so, so time and patience. And I think 
you know, the, the curation of, of people that you follow, of sources that you respect. Um, I think that if you spend enough time looking at, you know, anything, it's like a puzzle. Um, you just have to sort of take your time to put the pieces together. And that's, that's kind of what I've found across the media landscape is that, um, you know, what it, all, all the articles that come out, you know, they, they all come from some genesis of an idea of an editor that has, an, you know, th there's some sort of nugget of, of where everything is coming from and trying to locate the truth in all of that. Um, what, what actually is the, the truth behind the story? I think that's a, you know, sort of almost philosophical question, but one that is immensely challenging, um, you know, and I think if, if I had a hack for it, um, you know, I would probably license that hack and, you know, um, focus on that. But, but uh, it's, it ultimately, I think it's just time and, and patience and sort of knowing who to follow and who not to follow. Yeah, but maybe yeah, it's also and, about, yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I would just tack on it's, it's, um, you know, one of our core um, firm principles is that we don't necessarily believe in complexity. You know, we just try to break things down to, you know, pixel level and then build up. Um, and, you know, I think that when we read, we read the contra opinions of everything that we do, maybe 50-50 on things that are in agreement or, or maybe more. Um, and some of the mistakes that, you know, at least we perceive people to be making is, you know, they silo themselves into only reading things that are congratulatory or almost conspiratory um, type information. So, you know, we, we read everything. We read what's, you know, things that support our theses, things that don't support our theses, and then, you know, try to constantly test that. But, you know, in terms of a formula, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, because it's, it's not easily quantifiable, it's not easy to hold, is that the relative value of qualitative work and investing, you know, has long been denigrated as um, unimportant to, to modeling, which we view a lot of quantitative work as commodity, commodity work. Um, so we think that that's an edge that people can pick up and it's, it's not something that you can necessarily break down into a, you know, Y equals MX plus B or something like that. One thing I find helpful as a kind of hack are the mental models or the frameworks where you hanging your data up and building them. And I have a quite interesting quote by Ani or from your letters added by Ani. It is early last decade I developed our current strategy from scratch. I realized that the new paradigm shift in technology needed a new valuation models, a new approach. What does that mean, this new approach? Yeah. Um... So all value from our perspective is future value. Um, I think what, what our sort of overall philosophy is, is that especially in industries that are undergoing a rapid shift where you're going from technology A to technology B uh, requires a fundamental new framework for analyzing these business models. So it's no longer relevant from our perspective to just try to slap on you know, a PE ratio or or look at some sort of backwards looking metric to, to figure out future value. And so I think in the short term, especially across the, the type of universe of names that we look at that are particularly in the high growth um, business models, where we see a lot of our competitors maybe trip up is they get stuck in this framework of analyzing businesses using these metrics that, that are inherently backwards looking. And, and just to kind of push along what, what Dan was getting at earlier, It requires, we think at least, you know, sort of a more focus on qualitative analysis to understand not just what's happening today, but ultimately where the customer is most likely to go in the future. 
that really requires an intense understanding of uh, the value proposition. And so when we spot something that, you know, maybe looks from a traditional perspective overvalued or something that's complex, we're actually drawn to those industries because, um, you know, in that complexity, that's where actually we can gain an advantage. I think another sort of Arnie philosophy is that, you know, he's a big Buffett and Graham fan and would say that he agrees 99.9% of with what Buffett has said, except for the concept of, of circle of competence. Um, that, that's one area where we think that when investors get siloed into staying within their circle of competence, uh, that, that enables us to get an opportunity and an edge by, by drilling into it. Because they're, they're ultimately, as Dan said, from our perspective, there is no such thing as complexity. Um, you know, that, that is our job, is to break down complexity into its, into its bare essentials. And, and understand what's actually happening and put the put the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, so our valuation frameworks really are um, sort of industry and, and company specific. They, they tend to be more forward looking. You know, they, they prioritize different elements of, of a company's business model. We, we really you know, focus on high growth models, margin expansion, um, but certainly, as Arnie would say, tricky valuations. We, we like tricky valuations. That, that's actually where we can get an edge. Yeah, um, you know, Ar Arnie's background was kind of as a cigar butt style turnaround stock investor, you know, um, but, you know, things aren't the same as they were 50 years ago where, you know, there, some company might have an asset that, you know, was 2x their book value and it just, you know, you could just highlight that and it would double. Um, from our perspective, um, he needed and we needed an investment um, framework that, that, um, optimizing inefficiencies of the market that we're looking at now. Um, and, you know, as Eric alluded to, you can't just use a simple DCF in these messy um, environments. Um, so the models themselves become um, more basic, more vanilla, more traditional as the company grows. But the greatest opportunity for um, asset mispricing is when things are the least clear in um from that, you know, we focus really heavily on, you know, different metrics than you would use historically. Um, and at the same time, if we're looking at competitors, just because, you know, something has happened in the past is not necessary to repeat in the future, you know, always the good financial tagline. And, um, you know, we think that there's a, there's a couple market dynamics that are not being priced even accurately to this day. One is that because of the proliferation of information, the relative lack of geographic boundaries that we've seen historically, that we're seeing increasingly massive concentration in select companies. So, you know, you have to pick that company and it's maybe its secondary competitor. Whereas I, I think, you know, as this space has become more attractive, I think, to more traditional investors, they want a broad basket of companies in a, in a specific um, vertical change. And from our perspective, that's a mistake. Um, and, but at the same time, you have to build conviction and building conviction is extraordinarily difficult and time consuming and, and, and you really have to do it over a period of years. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's clearly value in these spaces and, you know, we have to build a unique valuation framework model so that we are comfortable holding these specific positions, um, you know, where, you know, you can't rely on, you know, more convenient shorthand metrics. Do you like to own stable companies or what kind of companies do you like to own? 
So I think that the, I think maybe first distinction is, um, you know, businesses that we focus on and like to own tend to grow actually, you know, fairly linearly. The, the growth of the, the companies that we own, um, you know, we like to target companies that are that are generally over growing top line over 20 percent. Um, I think that in terms of stability, the market will throw prices at those businesses that are not stable. Um, I think that what we find is that the businesses that we own are actually growing pretty stable, uh, you know, that there's immense opportunity for expansion, specifically within maybe their core business line, but but opportunities for ex expansion outside. Uh, but the market misprices those on a day to day basis. Uh, and so we have to separate as a firm, you know, business risk versus price risk. Uh, and so, you know, maybe maybe that's not exactly the, the, the question that you were getting after, but the businesses ultimately that we like to own are, are growing extremely fast um, and, and stably. Uh, and there's not too many of those businesses, actually. And I think that's maybe the fallacy that uh, people fall into is is believing that maybe there's 50 or 60 businesses out there that are uh, have huge prospects and are, are growing, you know, stably and, and over 25 percent year over year um, at, a, at a you know significant scale. There's just frankly not that many opportunities out there, which is which is why our, our strategy really does prioritize a heavy concentration and and, uh, you know, a, a pretty, uh, I'd say, um, high bar to enter into our portfolio. Yeah, and I, I might just tack on, you know, clearly, you know, when for, for us to generate um, successful returns, we have to be able to buy an asset that's mispriced. Um, if we look at a stable industry, you know, as we denigrate these kind of traditional valuation frameworks, they're, they're pretty good and the market's relatively efficient in those spaces. So in a in a vertical that, you know, has predictive cash flows, it's relatively difficult for us and, you know, in my opinion, any money manager to get a uh, an exceptional advantage over their peers. Um, you're just kind of really trading around the margins. Whereas when we look at the opportunities in these messy spaces, and again, you have to be right, um, you know, there's the opportunity for very significant returns and there's an opportunity to gain a, a, a pretty sizable edge you know, over your competitors, you know, again, because you can't just use simple valuation models. It, it all has to be forward looking and you, and you have to, you know, be able to build confidence in your, in your own models. Um, as opposed to just, it's easier to look at what happened the past five years, throw a simple run rate on it and then, you know, discount it back. What role does historical data play for you? Um, I think we, of course, that's a good question. So historical data is extremely important, right? Uh, so I think that it's all a question around how much we emphasize historical data into our actual valuation framework. Uh, so just because a company was, was able to establish itself and grow to a certain size in the past, certainly in this environment does not necessarily mean that they will be able to continue that growth into the future. Um, I mean, I think that this is really what we're seeing from an industry perspective, which is a consolidation. Uh, over time, the market, as Dan points out, obviously is quite efficient. In the short term, though, I think the market does have a bit of a challenge actually understanding the consolidation of effect into one or two of the select winners. And when you consider, you know, all business and all value proposition is generated today and, and into the future, historical data actually doesn't really affect 
you know, sort of customer level value proposition. So on a, on a very basic example, you know, if you have a business that had a great product for, for 30 years, uh, a competitor comes into the marketplace um, with a lower cost and more efficient product, the, the historical data around your product sales over the last 30 years can be rendered pretty meaningless overnight. Uh, and so that's the danger that we find in this marketplace. And, and frankly, a lot of the danger embedded within, you know, a lot of the passive strategies that just hold, you know, huge baskets of stocks is that because of the sort of cost curves and, and the, the accelerating impacts of these technologies, some of these business models can be rendered pretty obsolete very quickly. Uh, that's a challenge. That's a, that's a significant challenge, not, you know, certainly for us, but for any investor today is is accurately sort of uh, sizing up how much of the emphasis of historical data and historical success will really carry over into, into future value. Um, you know, you see that playing out with certainly in the energy industry with a lot of these old oil incumbents saying we're going to transition our business models. Well, if you look at sort of the history of business, the incumbents very rarely are able to successfully transition business models. Um, they will you know, put up a fight and they will put out many marketing press releases, but ultimately you have to look at where their, their cash flows are coming from. And, and if they don't truly, you know, shift capital allocation to the new paradigm, you know, this is why blockbuster companies like blockbuster just ultimately are rendered obsolete and it happens pretty quickly. So I think that's, that's the danger of looking at historical analysis and prizing it too high in your framework is you get stuck in sort of legacy thinking, um, and in this environment, we think that can be pretty dangerous. Yeah, I might just tack on. I, I, I obviously agree um, with, with what Eric said. Um, you know, in stable industries, it's a, it's it can be incredibly useful and prescriptive of the future. But in you know what we do, and we really only focus in these these messy areas of the market, it, it could have zero value. Um, I mean, I guess the only value I, I would say is that. Um, even if there is a superior economic model, people's consumer, uh, either people or, or business consumer patterns are still relatively slow to change. Um, so, you know, for us, that's great because, you know, you can compound growth over an extended period of years and it's, it's relatively more, um, it's still lumpy, but it's, it's, um, it, it's over, you know, an extended investment horizon. Um, and, you know, that's one of the interesting things that, you know, from, from our perspective, um, the, uh, the, the pandemic has changed is we've seen a pull forward of probably a couple of years of, of rapid consumer behavioral change, if not more. Um, so yeah, it, it, it depends on whether it's in a disrupted vertical or in a stable industry. Um, and the, you know, maybe the only value that you can get out of it is, um, you know, the pace of change. And, you know, even if things are, are moving at relatively fast rates, it still takes a while for a complete changeover, um, you know, um, to, to the new business model. With your investments, you're focusing on, I think, five sectors. Um, it's energy, transportation, retail, cloud computing, and digital entertainment. What sectors or what two sectors out of this five are your top sectors? I would say, um, you know, energy and transportation would be our top sectors right now that we're focused on. And why these? simply as a function of the the enormous change that we forecast happening over the next 10 years. So, um, you know, specifically within energy, uh, what, what we're seeing is a total disruption across the energy uh, landscape, moving from 
a, a system that has historically relied on extraction of, of fossil fuels to a system that is primarily based on the, the collection of wind and solar uh, through storage and then distribution over a decentralized grid. And so, um, you know, there's a lot to unpack within that framework. Uh, but, but ultimately, we're so focused on it right now because we just think everything is moving towards a renewable paradigm. Um, it has, from our perspective, very little to do. Certainly, you know, we, we follow all the political developments, but from a, from a value proposition perspective, uh, the costs are lower, it's more efficient, and it's only a matter of time, from our perspective at least, when we make a full transition to, to this, uh, to this uh, you know, new paradigm. And so you know, within that category, that's obviously solar and wind, but it's also battery storage, um, it's energy software and virtual power plants. Uh, and then, of course, on the transportation side, that's that's an enormous, uh, you know, sort of force function for us and, and focus area. The the disruption from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, autonomous transportation, uh, you know, pretty much any modality of, of transportation uh, we think is going to move towards renewables and autonomous. Uh, and so for us, that's this is, you know, the area to be focused on for the next 10 years if you're looking for opportunity. Um, it's attracted a lot of attention. Um, you know, I think it's attracted some frothiness in the market. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we're so focused on on those two areas as a, just a as a function of, of how much opportunity there is to be disrupted. What gives you the confidence that this new paradigm will come true? It's from our, our perspective, just a, a function of cost and efficiency of the technologies. So it's you know, to talk about electric cars, um, it's a cheaper, more efficient mode of transportation. Um, for many years, cost was the limiting factor. Battery production was the limiting factor. And battery energy, uh, the, d the density of the batteries was limiting factors. Um, we're still not there yet. You know, we haven't, uh, as Arnie would say, totally crossed the Rubicon. Uh, but that's what makes it, frankly, kind of exciting um, and challenging. But if you look really kind of on a deep historical and, and sort of fundamental basis, the technologies uh, have improved rapidly over the last 10 years. That's that that gives us a great deal of confidence that ultimately we are transitioning to this this new energy paradigm. Yeah, and, and um, you know, just to tack on Eric's earlier first point, I mean, if if you know these economics are more compelling and we do move in that direction. Um, if you start to think of the secondary and tertiary effects of all that, it's, it's almost mind-blowing how much opportunity that is and how much upheaval, um, primarily in a good way, that will be. And, you know, we could even, it's not really investing-based, but if you look at geopolitics and all around the world and where countries are deriving the revenues, I mean, it's and on and on and on. It's, it's the, the, one of the, it could be the greatest transformation and, and uh, also transfer of market cap that, you know, we might see in our lifetimes. Um, and just to tack on to what Eric said, you know, in terms of technology improving, um, the, the cost compression and, um, of what we've seen over the past 10 years, you know, generally speaking, when you look at, um, the forecasts that, you know, all these big agencies put out, uh, at least historically, they've been linear, right? Where, whereas nothing really happens linearly. So when we focus on the nonlinear compression of cost and the nonlinear rate of adoption, um, you know, that's where you know, we start to really get excited about uh, these opportunities. And, and that's where technology has been being adopted for a relatively long period of time now. Um, 
and you know there's incentive i mean it's it's just we can go on and on it's it's there's a lot to unpack and we're, we're talking trillions of dollars um you know that will either be made and simultaneously lost you're also shorting yeah sorry no go ahead you're also shorting and trying to stay away from certain business models um are you shorting then in the energy sector and maybe you can also add some light why you are shorting besides just going long yeah uh i mean maybe dan can talk a little more about like the specifics of just portfolio construction as it relates to the shorts but i can talk a little bit more of the philosophy behind it um you know i, I think ultimately any business model that that relies on some some legacy fossil fuel Uh, asset as its main source of, of cash flows, we, we think will ultimately be disrupted. Um, so this ranges from uh, companies that are focused on combustion engines to trucking companies, um, even down the value chain towards auto dealerships, um, auto parts retailers. Uh, so we're looking for companies that ultimately you know, will be rendered or could be rendered obsolete um, in the next five to 10 years. So that, that's the framework of, of how we think about um, you know, how do we find an attractive short opportunity? Obviously, and maybe Dan can talk a little bit more about this, um, you know, equity markets, it's, it's very difficult to, to, you know, actively short right now. And I think it requires an immense focus on, on risk, uh, risk management, uh, position sizing, and so on. And so, but, you know, frankly, from an industry perspective, yeah, I'd, I'd say we're looking for um, coal companies, oil companies, any, any company across the, the energy landscape that ultimately just can't transition its business model. Yeah, it's been a, uh, an interesting year for the, for the short book. Um, you know, one thing I'll say is, you know, if we look at our, our strategy, it's, it's a natural pair trade where we look at basically the dominant winners and then there's a, uh, let's call it a handful or, or a basket of losers that we see the market cap being swallowed up into this, you know, new player in the, in the field. Um, so, You know, theoretically, that produces, you know, a bit of a melting ice cube. And when these um, precipitous drops in quote price, you know, do happen in the market prices in the, the forward looking valuation, uh, you know, frequently it happens very quickly. So, you know, you have to be in position and that's what we want to do. Um, so that's kind of the high level um, strategy when, when we talk about more of um, the past year or so and what we've experienced. Um, You know, last March, you know, we we took off a, a decent amount of risk in our in our book, and you know, at simultaneously um, increased you know our short exposure. You know, as we followed the pandemic, you know, from Asia to Europe, and it's uh, ultimately its global destination. Um, and you know, for us, it, it allowed us to have a successful March. Um, you know, we ended up paying for that hedge um, in April and May, but we were comfortable because. You know, to some degree, and I, I think anyone would be lying if they knew perfectly well what was going to happen. Um, so, you know, if you're driving a car and you can only see X feet in front of you, you have to um, act accordingly. Um, so when we um, basically saw the, the base, you know, really high level of support that the Fed was going to get and the fact that there was pretty tremendous single name risk in individual short positions, we spread out our names, um, you know, far more than we, we typically have. And we, we typically have small short positions anyways, just due, due to the nature of the trade. So for in 
the other thing too is that there is no way to get familiarity in those names overnight. It, you know, you have to study them for, for years and years, know their respective weaknesses. And, um, you know, we had an article on American Airlines in 2016 or 17 or something like that, you know, buying back their shares fresh out of bankruptcy and, you know, um, putting themselves in a vulnerable position and any sort of adverse economic effect. Um, yeah, so for us, it's, we, we, we see it as two sides of a trade and that, you know, we, we'd like to profit on both. Um, but, I, you know, I'd be lying if I'd say that the past year hasn't been hard to, to generate, you know, really significant profits on that. But if help me to understand, if you have identified the winners and this winners could upgo tenfold, why the effort of shorting? Because the short is, the return you can get is limited and you always have to find new shorts. Yep, yep. Obviously, the, uh, the the return profile is asymmetric, right? So you can lose unlimited and you can only make 100%, which you'll never make anyways. Um, again, for us, it's it's nice to have that hedge um, in, in times of chaos. It's, it's a comfort to, you know, our partners and, and us that, you know, we can limit the damage uh, or at least attempt to limit the damage. Um, and again, you know, with all the work we do and everything we put in, you know, we're, we're trying to generate um, the best absolute return that we can get. And if we think that we can pick up, um, you know, some, some, some more returns from that portion of the book, while at the same time maintaining, you know, some sort of a basic hedge, you know, we, we think it's an attractive proposition. Maybe let's take a look at your um, portfolio. Uh, here we go. It's, this is the part that, that is publicly, publicly disclosed. And um, just like from the um, upper level looking on the portfolio, um, when I try to reverse engineer this, what are the principles beside what we already have discussed that flow in the thinking of your portfolio, the, the position sizing? Um, yeah, what are those principles? Yeah, so I mean, generally speaking, on the um, on the long side, you know, we'll we'll own anywhere between five and fifteen names. Um, you know, we're historically, um, you know, pretty comfortable as long as the the opportunity merits it to be pretty heavily concentrated in a single name or two. Um, you know, potentially up to you know twenty five to forty percent. Um, you know, that's a pretty rare occasion, and and I think uh, we'll only have a few of those over the the lifetime of our strategies. Um, on the short side, you know, as Dan pointed out, we're certainly going to be more heavily diversified. I don't think those those public um, disclosures really um, do do our portfolio justice because I think there's just some inaccuracies embedded within the 13F filings. Um, and so, but across the short book, you know, we'll have anywhere from from 50 to 85 names, um, roughly speaking. Um, and we like to be, you know, we like to be concentrated in what we believe to be the most disruptive business models in the world. Um, you know. Over, over a longer time horizon, we believe that this is the best way to compound wealth uh, on an absolute basis for, for our partners. Um, you know, certainly, you know, I think the more um, traditional academic view is, um, you know, the, the, this will increase the volatility of your strategies and therefore increase risk. Um, our perspective is uh, that, that headline risk and price risk are just Fundamentally, fundamentally not the same as business risk. And so what we want to do is just truly own these companies for the long term. Um, it requires immense amount of conviction. 
uh, you know, it, it definitely requires patience, perhaps, you know, a bit of a contrarian mindset um, and a focus on valuation. But ultimately, we believe that, you know, sort of in this, especially in this sort of environment in which there's a lot of change happening quickly, that is that is the best risk adjusted way to, to deliver returns for our partners is to be um, pretty select in, in what we own. And we're able to withstand the sort of, you know, monthly, quarterly, even yearly volatility in pursuit of these, you know, truly absolute long-term uh, gains for our partners. Um, you know, it'd be lying if I'd say we, it's, it's not a challenge. Obviously, this is the hardest game in the world. Uh, it certainly is. And, and certainly to, to kind of, when you see, you know, a deviation in the price on a, uh, you know, on a big position, a drawdown, which are bound to happen, uh, it, you know, it forces you to really stay really focused on what the competition is saying, what, your, what, what the sort of contrarian thesis is, what's driving the price action. Um, and then obviously, you know, we're, we're always looking for and spending years developing conviction on, on the next disruptive opportunity. So um, we don't get to, you know, a, a 40 or 25% position overnight. It takes years of research and understanding of these business models to really um, build up to that position size. Yeah, and uh, I, I totally agree. And um, just to kind of like go, go back to what we've been talking about previously in valuation and, and how these things change over the life cycle of the specific investments that we look into. Um, you know, we, we have respect for our competitors in the, in the space and we have respect for people on the contra side of the trade. Um, ultimately, as um, these businesses mature, um, they become relatively easier to value. Um, so that is, um, in many ways, that closes the delta between, you know, what we be believe is the, the intrinsic value in the, in the traded quote price. So if we're converging on, um, you know, full valuation, obviously the, the sizing of the position isn't as, as attractive as it once was, right? Because there's, there's only so much room for it to grow. So, you know, it's for us, it's opportunity um, in its life cycle of these kind of disrupted verticals. And, you know, one of the, you know, relatively nice things in our strategy is that, you know, while we do kind of specifically focus on five verticals, everything we do is on a multi-year basis and they're at different life cycles in their progress. And in terms of opportunity as well, you know, we think that these disruptive events will ultimately tap on basically every component of the, the modern, you know, global economy. Um, so if, if the markets weren't efficient, then that, that wouldn't work out over an extended period of time. Um, so it, it, a lot of it comes down to opportunity in, in um, development of the, the transition from you know, one business model or one economic model to uh, a newer economic model. In the snapshot, we saw a certain activity in the disclosed information, like there were no, only two positions where I, uh, there was no chance uh, change visible in the positions like what leads to this activity and what makes you for instance sell yeah so uh, i think one of the things i mean i'll get into that in a second but you know what we like to do is is really i think philosophically let winners run i think that what we see um happen pretty often and you know certainly something that arnie is really focused on is 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 letting these these companies run to ultimately you know as dan alluded to what we view as their as their fair value, which which can take really a period of years, and I think that there's a lot of temptation to sell. Um, certainly, if you know we see a, a quick pop, um, but we stay focused on sort of the long term valuation. As far as you know, when we do sell, it's a variety of metrics. You know, sometimes it's as simple as 
Um, you know, it could be going, well, it could be sort of a, a tail risk event like March 2020 when we just want to take risk off the table. Um, it could also be just a function of a new opportunity or an existing opportunity in the portfolio that we want to augment. So we will we'll transfer from one position to the next, um, given the, the opportunity set of the valuation. So, um, you know, that that's another. Uh, and I think really it is a focus on just deploying capital effectively into, you know, these companies where we're meeting kind of where we want to be, um, where they can hit certain valuation frameworks um, and, and sort of goalposts that we're tracking. And also, as we develop conviction in these positions, we want to add to them over time. So that, that also, you know, forces some selling um, from lower conviction or lower opportunity type of positions that have reached more of a fair value. Um, but, you know, maybe Dan, I don't know if you have any thoughts there that you that, that you wanted to add on. Yeah, no, nothing crazy. I mean, there was there was no like fundamental um, investment DCs change. Just kind of optimization, and, and I, you know, from our perspective, in, in really, you know, Arnie's hyper, uh, you know, life's work focus is to put out the best portfolio possible. Um, so uh, we don't use a crazy amount of leverage or anything like that. So um, there is some kind of tweaking around the margins that we'll do um, because we never want to think of ourselves as, as satisfied and, or, you know, happy with what we did in the past because the past is, is gone. So all we're, all we're good for now is what we can do going forward. And, um, you know, so kind of little tweaks and things like that, which may not seem, you know, completely material. Um, you know, first we, we think if we can pick up any sort of returns, you know, that's great. And then, you know, we also think it's, you know, an attractive mindset to, to always try to put out, you know, the best thing that you possibly can. And, you know, even if that's focusing on, you know, the third decimal point of a short or something like that, um, obviously without being <laughs> spending too much time, but it's, it's kind of a mindset. Um, so, yeah. But, but you already nothing, mentioned, yeah, yeah, yeah not, not, nothing, um, you know, we didn't, you know, fire up the computer and, you know, turn one of our longs into a short or anything like that. You already mentioned the, the digging you do uh, before you invest and that, that it might take years. Um, maybe you can explain a bit of the digging you did for your biggest position for Tesla. Um, and can me, can walk me through the process of falling in love with uh, the big position in Tesla? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I think one way Arnie likes to kind of talk about just this this process of digging and, and observation is, um, you know, as Jane Goodall sort of famously, um, you know, just observes the the chimpanzees, right? Just sits on the hillside and just watches. And I think that's that's our approach to a lot of industry observation for a period of years. You know, we, we don't take an opinion. We, we don't really try to have a strong perspective on something. We just we just watch as objectively as possible. Um, you know, I think when when it comes to a big position, you know, like Tesla or or Amazon before it, which was another, you know, is a current position and had been a much larger position and towards the inception of the strategy. Uh, what what we saw with with Tesla um, and continue to see. Um, is is a massive opportunity to completely reorganize the the wealth pie across transportation um, and energy, and we think that you know historically um, the the sort of analysis that we've seen on the company. I mean, you can kind of go back um, all the way, you know, 2012, 13. Analysts were kind of talking about the company as they are today, just fundamentally, I think, misunderstanding a lot of the the key aspects of this. It's it's a really tricky valuation. It's a really tricky company to, to truly understand. 
and it takes years to kind of develop a thesis around it. Um, anyone who comes to this company overnight just looks at it is likely not going to understand it. So in terms of the actual, you know, sort of fundamental research that we do, um, we do everything possible. So Dan and I have taken, you know, visits out to battery factories. Um, you know, we speak to auto dealers. We go to the industry auto shows. Um, we go down, you know, Dan thankfully has a good uh, uh, science background. We drill down into the chemistry of the actual cells and uh, understanding how these battery packs work, what gives Tesla an advantage there. Um, so from, from our perspective, you know, the work is really never done. Uh, there is, you know, this is like the ultimate puzzle to figure out of how the next 10 years of transportation is going to be reorganized in a new uh, electric first, uh, you know, uh, paradigm. And so uh, from our perspective, Tesla is maybe one of the most misunderstood companies out there. Um, that gives us, a, that gives us, you know, uh, definitely... Uh, an opportunity to take a sizable position on a really misunderstood company. Um, and, you know, as far as the, the sort of level of research that we go into the competitors, um, you know, specifically to Tesla, as well as the analysis, uh, we vacuum it up constantly. So um, perhaps, you know, I think what Arnie would say is um, like, in, like in chess or, or in poker, you know, you, you know your hand, you know the, the, the pieces that you're playing with. But what's potentially even more important is to know what your opponents are thinking. Um, and to develop, you know, a thesis based on maybe some flaws in their analysis to, to gain an edge or conviction there. So a lot of our time is spent really just going through the contrarian theses, understanding why people are maybe bearish on a position like that, um, why may, people may be short like it. And um, though we may disagree, we certainly have respect for anyone that, that puts up capital, um, you know, to, to express their, their view. Um, it takes years to develop a conviction in a company like Tesla, just as it did, you know, the company like Amazon and, and Netflix and some of these, you know, in the moment, pretty contrarian type of positions. Yeah. And, uh, we certainly didn't do it for our health. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you know, what, one of the things is there are certain things that are, you know, demonstrably facts, right. You know, so when we look at, um, you know, prismatic versus cell versus pouch, different batteries, you know, even when we look at, you know, who's investing down the supply chain, who's investing in battery factories, you know, three or four years ago, what these, um, you know, who's just making PowerPoints, you know, you know, we went to the LA auto show, you know, you can do simple checks, you know, do their big hyped EV product isn't even there and they don't know when it's coming. Um, and you know, from us, we look downstream, well, you're not purchasing the necessary components to get either make batteries um, or, or get batteries. What is the effect of outsourcing your core competency, you know, if you're uh, a legacy OEM to, you know, an Asian battery supplier? You know, are you nearly as, what's your, your moat that you used to have if, you know, your, your traditional skill is um, uh, combustion engine production and then that's being outsourced? You know, a lot of the mistakes that were made we're saying that all of these companies could just flip and it's still being made, could just flip a switch and then, you know, go from one completely um, different way of doing business to a completely, you know, it's very, very difficult. And if you saw the growing pains and, you know, even when we look at um, uh, all of the different business lines that, you know, we think respectively have tremendous opportunity for, for a creative value growth, um, the, the market just oversimplified it 
Um, so for us, it was really focusing on the technology, you know, and that allowed us to then handle the deluge of information, say, well, okay, nine times out of 10, that's not material or that's just a great headline. Um, you know, and, and because we know the, the underlying business, we know the underlying technology, and we know who's actually, you know, moving ground and who's actually just making PowerPoints. Um, you know, if you look at, I, I don't really want to denigrate like people, but um, it was very surface level. And so for us, um, that's, that's opportunity. You know, if a gigantic portion of the market is against you um, and you see a very tremendous opportunity, and so you're able to purchase at, you know, relatively low prices, that's, you know, kind of all you want as an investor. Doesn't make it easy. It's extraordinarily difficult. And, you know, you have to kind of have a compulsion to really want to generate returns. Um, so, yeah, it's it's slow. And, um, you know, even when we look at um, a lot of the players in the full self-driving or autonomous space, you know, we, we feel very we felt comfortable years ago that, you know, you know, vision and radar were, were going to be superior to the, the LIDAR and mapping paradigm. So it's, it's a lot of things that kind of add up and um, it allows you to feel, I don't know about comfortable, but, but confident in your decision-making process. What else is still misunderstood in Tesla? I think, um, you know, from, from our perspective, what we really like to find in companies is, is a customer obsession. So if you just look historically at really some of the most successful businesses out there, um, it really starts with the customer. So we like to see, you know, both literally and maybe metaphorically customers lined up around, around the, uh, the corner to get the product. And uh, I think what perhaps is maybe most misunderstood is, is a little bit what Dan is getting at, which is how challenging it is to create a complex manufacturing output uh, at scale. So this is something that we look at pretty closely right now, especially as we see a flood of, of new entrants into this market of prototypes. Now, prototypes are, you know, they can look really great, especially on a slide deck and maybe even in a presentation, you, you bring a, you know, a prototype out on stage and you can maybe drive it around. That's great. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm right now for prototypes and that is, I think, where we're going to have a lot of problems in the next few years. So what's really challenging about the auto business is complex manufacturing at scale and having enough of the supplies to actually reach those, those pretty lofty goals of production. Um, very few auto man manufacturers, from our perspective, are gearing up for the crunch of supply and manufacturing capability that will enable the type of output that they are predicting. That goes all the way down into the supply chain that's required. And so, you know, I think if you're an investor in this space, what, what you really need to focus on is, is who is best poised to succeed given their capabilities today. Uh, that's what you need to ask. And then also ask, what are they doing? If, they, if they're not prepared today, what are they actually doing to prepare for that output? Um, and that's not just, I would say, in the hard materials or, or hard technology. It's the software as well. Um, you know, if you if you look at some of the, the competitors, and this isn't necessarily even just, you know, full self-driving or autonomous, setting that, that aside, if you look at the type of software platforms that are being utilized in some of the new electric powertrain uh, platforms, um, I would I, I would take a real close look because we certainly have. Um, I've tested the 
the, the competitors and looked at their software platforms and the ability to kind of send over the air updates onto those onto those cars. And uh, that is going to be a really difficult transition for some of these these OEMs. Um, you know, I think broadly speaking, the more sort of misinformation and, and sort of, you know, um, marketing statements from the competitors, frankly, the better, um, because as Dan pointed out, we're, we're comfortable with some short-term noise and misinformation as, as long as we're, we're, we're focused on the business. We're not really too focused on, you know, uh, what, what an executives would say. Arnie has, you know, sort of great idea about executives. Uh, they're, they're gladiators in the Coliseum. They're going to say what they're going to say to make them sound tough. Um, it's also pa paired with the only way to develop this conviction is to be open-minded enough to actually test out the competitors and to and to want to believe and to go down that that path of analyzing your you know the competitors of the business and you know if 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 a competitor to Tesla if an, either a new entrant or an existing incumbent comes out with a incredible product that that's winning among customers uh, you know we want to own the business the best businesses of these you know of this dynamic and so. Um, we're open-minded to some of the new, especially some of the new upstarts that are interesting to us that are actually developing the capabilities to uh, produce the output that are actually having, you know, the, the hard talks around, okay, we need to actually build up these manufacturing facilities. Um, those are more interesting to us. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a minefield. And I think uh, a lot of the companies that are coming to market today with, uh, you know, electric promises. We'll see where they are in the next five, 10 years. Um, but it could, it could certainly be a winner take most type of dynamic, uh, just, just given the complex manufacturing and, and how difficult it is to scale up these businesses. Do you want to add something? Sure. Um, yeah, no, you know, from our perspective, um, one of the most important things is, uh, software, right? So, you know, that leads to the possibility of, you know, pretty heavy gross profit and, you know, you know, very successful cash flow. Um, you know, when we look at the competitive landscape, we're still not overly um, impressed. And then if we look for drivers evaluation going forward, um, again, the, 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 the energy software component, the, the battery company component, um, you know, auto bidder, um, and then the, the real, you know, potentially greatest step change is, is the, you know, full self-driving and, and what that can mean. Um, and then, you know, the market is still in, in, at least in our opinion, pretty unsophisticated on the different, um, paths that companies are going on. Um, Eric, you'd agree on that, right? I mean, in terms of when we yeah, look absolutely. at these companies yeah. with, with pretty heavy valuations, um, you know, we think they have a chance to be at zero in, you know, some short order, you know, we're not looking to get in front of those trains, but, um, it's completely different technologies. And then the, the difference in data accumulation, um, is it's a flywheel effect that is only going to increase. So again, it, there's just a ton of misunderstood. Um, and we look at, you know, three or four different business lines that we think can be, you know, quite large. Uh, another great big position of you is Spotify. Uh, where did you get the idea from to invest in Spotify? If, if any investors are, are curious to, to sort of read a longer form piece, we, we have you know published something that 
Um, if it's not available on our website, qualified investors can, can get in touch, which I think goes into the longer form thesis. But I think what we saw with Spotify um, was an early recognition that what Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify, was building, um, his early insight was that just as video is a trillion dollar opportunity, th there's no reason that audio can't be a trillion dollar opportunity as well. Um, I think when we just take a step back and look at the, think about the, the types of businesses that we're attracted to, um, we like businesses that are global in scale, that are high growth, um, that there's opportunities for margin expansion, um, that are platform-based business models, uh, and that are really sticky among their, their customers. So what we saw with Spotify was a company that was able to um, you know, leverage their access to, to music, to audio more generally, uh, to a global audience of subscribers that love the platform. And there's immense growth, growth opportunities within there. Uh, I think I'd encourage anyone to listen to the stream on event from a, a couple of months ago that, that the company put out that really kind of laid out and articulated the vision of, of, of true, you know, billion dollar user, or sorry, billion user, uh, uh, Spotify ambition, which we think is achievable. And I think that Spotify is one of those companies with a lot of optionality. Um, so companies that we, we generally are attracted to are, are ones that maybe have multiple business lines of, of revenue generation. So the, the traditional sort of music model that, that Spotify has uh, leveraged is, um, you know, developing relationships with, with artists and then um, ultimately, you know, being a music first platform. What, what the next sort of version of or Spotify 2.0 what we view it as becoming is a platform for all audio creation. And so that, that's everything from podcasts to storytelling. Um, and so it's, it's no longer just a music platform. It's, it's a platform for any sort of audio experience, which as you know very well, uh, is, uh, is increasingly attractive from an investor perspective, um, just given, frankly, some of the dynamics that we see on these platforms, uh, the ad rates, the retention, um, the consumer interest, and, Ultimately, I'd say, obviously, Spotify has some big competitors, um, you know, Apple, um, Amazon, uh, but can, remains to be the, the largest platform right now. Uh, and we think that there's immense opportunity, you know, left over the next, the next couple of years. It's, they're at a bit of a pivot point for the company, uh, but we love the optionality that they have to expand into something much larger than just music. What? like looking out five or 10 years, what options could have been come to real businesses at Spotify? I think, um, you know, certainly the, the, the monetization of these relationships between individual creators and, and their fans. Um, you know, we've seen business models like, like Patreon really um, explode over the last few years um, as a result of the sort of decentralization. So, we are attracted to businesses that enable people to uh, make money. Um, you know, we have a position in, in Shopify, which again is, is a platform-based business model that enables transactions between essentially, you know, a buyer and a seller. Um, we see this with Amazon as well. Uh, what Spotify can ultimately do is, is be that platform uh, on which those transactions take place. And that will integrate both direct, you know, likely direct relationships of, of monetization, but also uh, great advertising um, opportunities as well down the road to really specifically target specific audiences um, and enable creators basically to 
create the content that they want to um, and, and monetize it really successfully. Uh, certainly no other company has been able to do that with audio so far. Uh, and, you know, frankly, Spotify is, from our perspective, the most innovative, successful disruptor in this arena. Um, and there's, there's, there's immense runway for growth there. Why don't you, or why do you prefer Spotify compared to the labels? Like Universal Music or other labels, Warner Music, I think it is. I'm sorry, can you maybe reframe the question a little bit? Um, why? The music labels. Yeah, the music labels. Like, why do you prefer Spotify compared to the labels? Hey, Tillman here. I'm sure you're curious about the answer to this question. But this answer is exclusive to the members of my community, Good Investing Plus. Good Investing Plus is a place where we help each other to get better as investors day by day. If you are an ambitious, long-term oriented investor that likes to share, please apply for Good Investing Plus. Just go to good-investing.net slash plus. You can also find this link in the show notes. I'm waiting for your application. And without further ado, let's go back to the conversation. To sum our interview up, I want to ask the question, how much this self-disruption is embedded in the DNA of warm capital. So I think you mentioned one point that you're a kind of buffer, uh, Buffett and Munger fans, but you're always evolving and you have a certain factor of self-disruption, I think, embedded in your company or? That's a great, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I think that is something that, you know, Arnie really preaches pretty religiously uh, is that we can't fall victim to, you know, being disrupted ourselves. And so what that means is, yeah, being open-minded to challenge our own perspective, our own views, and frankly, just to not have opinions about any investment. Uh, you know, opinions are, are, are not really helpful. In fact, uh, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves on constantly challenging our, our conviction and, and starting each day with a with a fresh with a fresh piece of paper. Um, and I think that over time, you know, this sort of uh, highly convicted, you know, patient approach maybe can, you know, draw you down the path of, of being, uh, you know, kind of stuck in your ways. And we need to we need to constantly fight that to, to reassess and to challenge our viewpoints um, and be flexible when we need to be. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question because we do think about that quite often. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ar Arnie's been at this quite a while and, you know, you know, from his perspective, if he's not getting a little better every year, um, it's, it's not worth doing. Um, so we just, you know, number one and, you know, try to stay humble in all of our opinions and, um, you know, look to the future. And, you know, even if we have had a little bit of success, it's, that doesn't mean anything going forward. So just try and get better in, um, you know, both in our analytical work and our, our psychological work and, and all those kinds of things. And um, just try and keep moving forward. And because, you know, people um, not making mistakes um, or really, really dramatic mistakes is, you know, maybe the key to success. Um, so um, just try and get a little better uh, all the time. 
For the end of our interview, is there something you want to add we haven't covered uh, that's interesting about warm capital? Not too much. No, I thought I, maybe the only, you know, kind of thing I'd like to add is, uh, you know, we're, um, Arnie is, is super competitive, right? And I think uh, you have to be really competitive in this business to stay, to stay really focused. And so um, while, you know, he's not on this call, um, you know, I think he, he, his message would be that he's super excited about the next 10 years. And it's just a matter of staying focused, staying, you know, truly competitive and, and, and eager to win and, and wanting to attack those opportunities that, that we spot. So, um, yeah, no, he, um, I think uh, I, I would just add, you know, maybe that, well, we can end it there. We can cut that out. I don't really have anything else to say there. <laughs> Do yeah. you have something to add? Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, no, just that we're, we think it's going to be a really interesting 10 years and that there's a lot of opportunities and then the the converse to that is that um we're gonna see a lot of change and you know um positioning is super super critical so yeah no we, we appreciate the time and, the, and and thanks thank you very much for coming on and answering this question so openly and uh, laying out your position and your approach thank you very much thank thanks. you gentlemen it was a pleasure and bye to the audience Bye-bye. Right. Bye, everyone. As in every video, also here is the disclaimer. You can find the link to the disclaimer below in the show notes. The disclaimer says, always do your own work. What we're doing here is no recommendation and no advice. So please always do your own work. Thank you very much.